All right, welcome back to the Biased Opinion Sports Podcast episode. PJ, and uh, a lot of stuff in store today. Pretty packed episode. Uh, we're going to start with uh, Patriots Ravens. Patriots first loss this season. PJ, get us started here. Yeah, I wasn't too surprised with the loss. I think 19 0, although we talked up, is it's hard to do. And this this is a, definitely a possible candidate for the loss. I I was surprised that the uh, Patriots were not able to stop the run. That I think they have they have a big weakness on both sides of the ball in the trenches. They cannot run the ball at all. Their life the offensive running is like not not very good at all. And then the defense, even the Bills and the Browns, even though they won the games, like the Bills and the Browns. But. You can't you can't run the ball. Last year they won the Super Bowl because they're able to run the ball. This year they can't even do that, and there's nobody on the outside really to throw to. And then if you can't stop the run, and what teams did to the Chiefs earlier this season, just run down the Chiefs' throat and keep the ball away from Mahomes, <clears throat> keep it away from Brady like the Ravens did. The Patriots are definitely susceptible to a loss uh, before the Super Bowl in the playoffs after seeing that performance against probably the only team that they've faced this season that really has a clue of how to play football. Yeah, I agree. The I mean, stopping the run was definitely their biggest issue. Uh, Lamar was actually – I mean, Lamar wasn't the most efficient when he ran, but he did have a couple nice touchdown runs, especially – I forget which number it was, but um, it seemed like he broke a couple tackles. And um, he, they, they, they weren't very – I mean, their passing defense wasn't great either. It was just – that was – nobody really noticed that because their running defense got gashed so bad that Ravens didn't really have to pass them much. But, I mean, Lamar went 17 of 23, uh, only 163 yards, but, I mean, he only threw the ball 23 times. And he – in the the worst the, – I, I think a concerning thing about this is is um, defensively is that – I mean, we knew the offensive ceiling was pretty capped with – as great as Brady is, I mean, the guy – the guy's – uh, he, he's not what he once was. The offensive potential is definitely capped if you can't run the ball. And um, so it was kind of going to be. I mean, this Super Bowl is going to have to be led by the defense. The Super Bowl running similar to last year, and clearly, the defense isn't as elite as, elite as people thought it was when they were calling it the most historic defense ever, ever. Although I did see a stat today that, I mean, if you look at all the best defenses over the last twenty years, just like the two thousand Ravens. I don't know whoever the Broncos a couple of years ago, Seahawks. Um, they all allowed at least one 30-plus point game in the middle of the season and then bounced right back. So maybe it's just a bump in the road and the past defense will be fine. I don't know. But, I I mean, you can't argue it was a pretty terrific performance by the Pats. And something – Sony Michelle obviously has not been great this year, but him only getting five touches, only four carries on the game, I think – I mean, obviously they were losing early and often, but that guy was – probably the biggest part of your, the entire offense in the playoffs and he has just been basically unused this season or poorly used uh the run blocking has been awful uh team clearly misses Devlin a lot and I don't know it's just the offense has not looked promising whatsoever and not, uh Edelman Sanu both had 10 catches and as great as those guys are in the slot Sanu on that deep ball that Brady threw that was not a bad throw and Sanu just he he tracked it so terribly I don't even know what he he like ran the wrong direction was the ball was, when the ball was coming to him and then he couldn't make a catch so neither of those guys can do anything downfield and I don't think Brady's deep ball is as bad as people say it is right now um they say he can't throw downfield anymore I mean his deep ball is still he can put some zing on he can throw an accurate deep ball still like 
30, 40 yards downfield, uh, maybe even more than that. And But I, he has nobody to throw to downfield the issue. So, I, I don't know. Definitely concerning performance for the Pats. Yeah, and then also we talked about so, – yeah, somebody Michelle got benched. But also it could have been a different game if uh, Julian Allen didn't fumble. I mean, the Pats look like they're going to score a touchdown there and take the lead. So, I don't know. It's hard to – it's easy to criticize, but then if they would have won the game, maybe some of these criticisms wouldn't be there. Because if they went up twenty to seventeen, you would have you would have expected them to go on and win the game from that point. With the Ravens having blown a seventeen nothing lead and handing the Pats ten points off of fumbles in the first half. Yeah, I I agree. I don't know. It's just it was a weird game, but um, the Pat even though it was a thirty seven to twenty uh like final score, it seemed pretty relatively close to the fourth quarter. Like I. I mean, I thought the Pats were going to – I'm obviously very biased, but I thought the Pats were going to win up until the, uh, the end of the game. So, I don't know. It was just it – was a, it was a tough game. But the lack of a downfield threat for the Pats, it's not something that I thought was going to be a problem, but it's – I mean, after last night, I do – that's the new deep ball really stood out to me. Like he, they, I mean, he played solid. He had 10 catches, like I said, but that deep ball really stood out to me. I mean, they don't really have anyone who can do anything downfield, and – when you don't have a run game, then you can't keep defenses honest at all. They know what's coming. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's just – it's it's a bad combination there on offense. And the defense needs to carry them. And they cl- clearly couldn't do it against the Ravens. Uh, anything else, Dad? No. Uh, moving on to the uh, MVP discussion. Uh, did uh, Lamar move up in your uh, MVP Yes. Ranking? So, for this game, I, I mean, I didn't really have an MVP pick. Um it's obviously there was only eight games played before this week for most teams, even after this week is a bye week. So, um, I don't know. I just didn't really have an MVP favorite in mind. I wasn't really thinking about it too much. Um, but after beating the Patriots, I can safely say that Lamar Jackson is my MVP favorite personally. Um, talk MVP, the, the candidates come up are probably Wilson, Lamar, and McCaffrey. And no order in particular, just saying them, stating them. And, um, McCaffrey's a running back. Uh, obviously, he's been huge for his team. And if you want to talk most valuable, he's most valuable. But um, I think a lot of that is scheme. I mean, McCaffrey's a beast. There's no no denying that. But I don't. Know. Quarterbacks are more important to winning. So I think quarterback is probably going to win MVP nine times out of ten. And uh, I mean, Lamar Jackson beat Russell Wilson. He beat Tom Brady. Who was Rus- who was Russell Wilson beat? No big names in particular. Uh, I mean. Lamar Jackson just dropped 37 points on the best defense in football. I'm taking Lamar Jackson on MVP. Who do you have? Yeah, I think uh, preseason I had Russell Wilson, and I'm going to I'm gonna stick with Russell Wilson. Clearly the uh, MVP of the season, 22 touchdowns, one interception. He's he's carried the Seahawks to close wins this season. People say, oh, the Seahawks aren't any good. They win close games. Well, that's what, that's what good teams and good quarterbacks do. They find a way to win the close games. And without Russell Wilson, they'd probably be below 500. And the defense has not really been as good as it has been in recent years. So I think the only reason why this team is in contention for the playoffs is because of Russell Wilson. And, yeah, he is by far the front runner for the MVP right now. Yeah, see, well, the thing about Russell Wilson and Lamar Jackson, you look at the difference in their offense. So obviously, the both offenses are pretty tailored around each of their skill sets. But Russell Wilson is throwing a Tyler Lockett, who the last two years has proven to be arguably – a top receiver in the game. I mean, he's very underrated. The guy went targeted. No, no receiver receiver in the league is as efficient as Tyler Lockett is. His stats are, and if you really look into his stats, it's actually ridiculous how good this guy's been. 
you have a physical freak in DK Metcalf who I don't know what the Buccaneers were doing, but in that game, the Buccaneers easily could have won that game. Um, Jameis Winston uh, played actually surprisingly wicked good that whole game other than that fumble. Um, but number 35, the cornerback for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers matched up on an island against DK Metcalf. Was one of the worst matchups I've ever seen. Uh, wide receiver or cornerback. It was absolutely like it, it looked like Randy Moss is prime against the Pop Warner guy. Like the guy, this guy number thirty five. I looked into him a little bit because I want to see who he was, and he's supposed to be this freak athlete, like one of the best athletes to ever step on a football field. And this guy was getting absolutely burnt every play, getting absolutely mossed. It, he looked, it was embarrassing. So Russell Wilson is a physical freak in DK Metcalf, who's kind of. I mean, his size-speed combo there, like, it's it's kind of a cheat code. You can't really put anyone on an island against him. And um, on the other side, you have Tyler Lockett, who's one of the best receivers in football. And then you have Chris Carson, who – that guy's a stud, too. He has fumbling issues. But other than that, the guy's a great running back, better than Mark Ingram. And then on the other hand, Lamar Jackson, I mean, who is he throwing to? Two rookies, Hollywood Brown, who doesn't, hasn't played for most of the season. Miles Boykin, a guy that you criticized very highly. Uh, coming out of ND, he said he wasn't any good. That's his number two target, I believe, right now, wide receiver-wise. He has Mark Andrews, a tight end. Who, I mean, the guy barely plays 40% of the team's snaps, like 50% of the team's snaps, because he can't block. Um, and, and he's a good tight end. He's athletic, but he's – Mark Andrews isn't like he's – he's a good downfield threat of tight end. He, he's going like the intermediate routes. He can't do anything short. Like, he's not a good check down guy at all. He just runs the same route essentially every time. Um and he's a, he's a good player. He's decent in the red zone, too. But Lamar Jackson has considerably worse options in the passing game and in the running game. Mark Ingram, I just said it. He's not as good as Chris Carson is. There's no doubt in my mind about that. Chris Carson is a much better player um, than Russell Wilson. And, um, I mean, I think Pete Carroll Pete Carroll and Harbaugh are both good coaches, but I think Pete Carroll is probably a better coach. He's a better winning track record. I just think Russell Wilson has a lot more support than Lamar Jackson. Neither of them have very good defenses. I'll give you that. The Seahawks defense is terrible, but the Ravens defense isn't very good either, uh, especially their secondary. So, um, especially when Russell Wilson played Lamar Jackson head to head, and Lamar Jackson came on the top. Obviously, they don't play on the field at the same time. They're quarterbacks, but um, Wilson has more support, and he couldn't get it done. Threw a pick six to cost his team the game. Lamar Jackson got it done. That's why I think Lamar Jackson deserves MVP if the debate is between him and Russell Wilson. Yeah, well, the that game, uh, Lamar Jackson completed nine passes. So I don't know, I don't know how the MVP of the league completes nine passes in a game, and you call him the MVP of the league. And also, Russell Wilson does have the highest uh, QBR rating through nine weeks of the NFL season this year. Just overtake, uh, just overtook Dak Prescott, and he has the, uh, yeah, he has the most points for total total clutch weighted expected points added stat is uh, Russell Wilson as well. So I don't know. I I probably put Deshaun Watson ahead of uh, Lamar Jackson, probably number number two, and McCaffrey's not even McCaffrey's not even in consideration for me right now. With uh, he just gets the ball every play, and I think a lot of guys could do what McCaffrey does, and they'll never win like that. So McCaffrey playing in Carolina, one o'clock every Sunday against the Titans. I'm not I'm not watching those games. And Russell Wilson, big stage Monday night against the. Uh, 49ers this week. We'll see what we'll see what he does. And I mean, and you talk about Lamar Jackson like completing nine passes. He averaged over seven yards per seven yards per attempt, where your boy Russell Wilson completed less than fifty percent of his passes too. And he averaged only five yards per attempt. And Lamar didn't throw a pick in that game, and Lamar ran for over hundred yards and a touchdown. Um, and Lamar Jackson had a better passer rating in that game than Russell Wilson. So I don't know how you can talk about 
Uh, the MVP, oh, he only completed nine passes. Well, he's still a better passer in that game than your boy, the MVP, Russell Wilson. Who, uh, if only Dak Prescott was leading the league in the quarterback rating start or whatever, that just proves that that's a pretty relevant stat. Dak Prescott's an average quarterback that gets carried by an elite rugby. It's total total QBR. They take everything into consideration. Yeah, it's a, it's a terrible stat. It's no, it doesn't equate to winning at all. If Dak Prescott's leading the league in a stat, then it's not a good stat. That stat means nothing. Dak Prescott is not shown to be an elite quarterback, not even close to one. Uh, I know I said beginning of the season I thought he'd take a step forward, but after watching him play this season, Dak Prescott's not elite. So if he's leading a league in a stat, then I don't think that should be an argument for who's winning MVP. So, yeah. Lamar Jackson, overall, I mean, head-to-head, you can't argue with that. You can't argue with the results. Uh, Lamar Jackson should be MVP over Russell Wilson as the season ends today, but obviously we still have like eight weeks to go, so anything could happen. Uh, moving on. Sure. Uh, LSU and Alabama play this week. Seamus, uh, it looks like Tua will be uh, healthy according to Nick Saban, so Mac Jones will will not be getting the start. Who do you uh who do you uh, see winning this battle? Um, I'm still gonna I'm gonna stick with. I'm going to take LSU to win this game. Um, it's not going to be the one and two teams because the playoff rankings came out and they made it the two and three teams. So the CBS game of the century commercials aren't going to be really valid that are going to be out all week. But um, I'm taking LSU. Joe Burrow, he's my highest in the pick still, and I think he's going to back it up with a huge game. Against the Alabama defense, that is not as good as they were in the past, although to be fair, LSU isn't either. Um, I think it's going to be a shootout, which is, I mean, you look at the, these two teams played as the number one or two teams in the country two times, actually, I think, uh, in the national championship man in the regular season, like six years ago, seven years ago. I, don't, uh, I forget when, but and the game finished like 7-3 or something like that. 9-6 nine, nine, yeah, in overtime. 9-6. Like and I think it's going to be a completely different game. Two, I mean, these programs are nowhere near where they were. No, Nowhere in any way similar to what they were. Um, from a just pure play style uh, perspective. So, yeah, I'm predicting a high-scoring game. And I'll take Joe Burrow in the shootout over Tua, even though Tua's got, like, four first-round picks of wide up. Yeah, I'm going I'm going with Alabama. Also, President Trump will also be in attendance at this game. And also going to the, uh, the shootout part, the over-under is, like, 65 points or something. So that's, that's crazy. I, I think Alabama's offense is uh, – Give me more high power than the LSU offense. The LSU defense has not impressed me at all this year. I mean, they gave up a bunch of points to Texas, and I don't know. Both both teams have question marks, but Alabama really needs to win this game to get into the playoff. If they lose this game, it's gonna be hard for them to get into the playoff over some one-loss conference champion. So, I think Alabama at home. They've been in the playoff every year. LSU hasn't beaten them in like eight years, and they've scored like three total points against them the last two times they've played combined. So I don't know. I'm going. I'm going LSU and Coach Saban. Although. Ed, Ed Orgeron, the LSU coach, is like eight and three against top ten teams. So you have to you have to respect that about him. So it'll it'll be it'll be interesting to say the least. Yeah, uh, it's gonna be a good game. I wish it was a prime time game. That would make it even more exciting. But I don't know. Can't complain about one and two teams facing off or two and three or whatever they are now facing off against each other in the middle of the regular season. Should be really exciting. Good time. Uh, good old time SEC football. Joe Burrow slinging it. I'm taking Joe. And also, who I think if Joe Burrow wins this game, I think he's that pretty much locks him in as the highest of the night. That's your highest of the moment if you beat Alabama, right? Uh, I would there, agree. There's no way because you're not gonna go, you're not gonna go into Alabama 
scoring 20 points and winning. So if he wins, he's going to have to put up 30 points. If, if, Joe, if Joe Burrow drops 30 points in Alabama with, like, what, three games left in the regular season, that's – I mean, I think that locks him into the Heisman spot. So could be a huge Heisman moment for Joe Burrow. Um, yeah, I mean, same with Tua. I don't know. I don't think Tua is winning Heisman, but uh, it's, it's going to be a lot of big-time players, big-time stage. Uh, yeah, although there's – I mean – Regardless of the outcome of this game, I can still see both teams making it to the playoff. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't really want to talk about a million scenarios right now, but the way the playoff works now, two two SEC teams uh, can pretty easily get in, I think, every year, especially with Ohio State and Penn State are going to play each other. And I think a one-loss SEC team makes it over in, in over a one-loss team in any other conference. So, yeah, I'm taking, but I'm taking LSU. Go time. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully the uh, college football playoff and two SEC teams getting in doesn't like take away from the magnitude of this game. You want to make it feel like whoever loses this game, their season's over, and whoever wins goes on to the playoff. Huh? Yeah, I, I mean, that, so that's that, part of what's that great about college take. football too is that every single game is like a playoff game. So that's true. You do want, you do kind of want that, but we'll see. All right, and uh, I guess moving on from college football. Yeah. Yeah. Let's move on. All right. Uh, recently announced is uh, Kawhi Leonard taking a load management day uh, tonight as we record against the Bucks. Ten o'clock game on ESPN. He is wrestling as they play. Their last game was Sunday. I don't, I don't know who they played, but it's Sunday. So he's had two days rest. He's wrestling against the Bucks. To uh, I think we're, I, we think he's playing tomorrow night against the uh, Portland Trailblazers at home. So uh, Seamus, what do you think about uh, Kawhi Leonard taking uh, tonight's game off against the Bucks? Um, I'm going to be quick because I know you really want to go into this, but I think the NBA is, I mean, they're proven time and time again, they're the softest league in sports. Uh, most, I'm talking players, I'm talking fans. I'm talking everything about that league is so just, it's so dumb. Like, it's just, it's like everything about that league bothers me. That's why I, I struggle to, I follow the NBA and I, I, I definitely, I mean, I watch plenty of NBA games, especially during the playoffs. And, um, it's not like I completely ignore the league or anything like, but. Um, it's hard to care about a team in this league, and this is a lot of because every player, all they care about is they don't. The fans are what makes them all the money, and I think players think that every player in the NBA thinks that they're like God Himself, and they need it. everything's about them, and they're taking games off. And they come on now, it's an 82 game season. NHL plays the same amount of games. MLB plays like three times the amount of games, or whatever. Ah, that's an exaggeration, but. Um, there's no reason after two days rest to take a game off, especially a game of this magnitude. I don't know why you couldn't take off a different game, um, unless you're scared of Giannis or something. And um, like apparently the NBA is claiming he's he's injured or something, but they're not saying what he's injured with. They're just saying saying he's 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 uh, medically not able to play or some I don't know some terrible. Terrible explanation. Didn't make any sense. The guy's clearly fine. I mean, come on. I, he shouldn't be sitting out this game. You go, you look at these fans who pay hundreds to up to thousands of thousands of dollars to attend these games, especially a game between the Clippers and the Bucks, where you want to see two of the best players in the game and Giannis and Kawhi go head to head. The teams buy, these fans buy their tickets ahead of time, and then like a day before the game, it comes out, oh, Kawhi's not going to play. But the day of the game, or I don't even know when this came out, but. And then you can't sell your ticket, and you're not going to get to see Kawhi play. I mean, I, I don't know. I think it's just – I think it's selfish. I think it's stupid. It's one thing if the guy's actually hurt. Then, obviously, there's no issue there. If you're hurt, you're hurt. But if you're just taking a load management rest day, 
then that's I think that's embarrassing and just a classic example of LeBron ruining the NBA in another way. I mean, LeBron started this trend, and yeah, classic NBA being soft. Shouldn't be sitting out games for rest. You, you get paid millions of dollars to be there because of the fans that are paying hundreds of dollars to see you play. And I think you're uh, being pretty selfish, and I think you're being self-centered, and I don't think uh, you're being fair to the people that are paying to watch you play, but that's the NBA for you. That's all they care about. So, yeah. Also, also, where's the, like, competitive edge to go up against one of the best players in the league? Like, shouldn't Kawhi have that game circled on his calendar? Like, when am I getting to play Giannis? And since they're in opposing conferences, they only get to play each other twice a year. So you would think Kawhi would want to play against Giannis both times that they get to play. And then also the game's at home. It's not like you're resting in Milwaukee. Like that's your that's your home fans you're not showing up for. So if you miss a game in Phoenix or in Memphis, fine. You shouldn't you shouldn't miss those. But if you want to take off eight games a year in random cities across the country, fine. But home games against top six team in the league, like well, what is that? Yeah, I agree. That is it's it's so it's just terrible. It's he's had two days to rest before this game. <laughs> and it's not like you're playing in like a physically strenuous league like the NFL or the or the NHL. You're playing in the NBA where if there's even a hint of any contact in the low post, they blow the whistle like two free throws. Come on now, it's not like in, you know it's not like you're full full sprinting up and down the court in the NBA either. When's the last time you saw a player at full speed in, on an NBA court? Like I don't even think it ever happens. The court's just not big enough for that to happen. There's there's no. It's not like you're sprinting like a wide receiver or something in the NFL or like. Yeah, it's it's so it's it's absolutely ridiculous that these NBA players need load management, um, and I I, I think it's ruining yeah. the league. I mean, it's it's dumb, it's stupid. So should should they just cancel the game? Like, what what are the other teammates doing? They're they're somehow managing to play it back. Yeah, I I. How are they managing to do it? But Kawhi can't do it. It's it's ridiculous, and NBA players, they're the league is becoming a league where all they care about is. Like making movies and followers, and I, Kawhi didn't seem like one of those guys. I like, I mean, Kawhi, I don't, he's a pretty quiet guy. It doesn't, but like, I don't, I just don't understand. I mean, he's only playing, he's played six games this season, and he's already gassed. I, that that doesn't add up. That doesn't yeah. make sense. Yeah, he already he already rested one game. He already rested one game. Six games. In Utah. Six games, and he's gassed after already resting one game. So, he, what are you playing? Three game intervals after three NBA games, playing thirty minutes a night, he's gassed. 30 minutes a night in the NBA, I mean, like, it, it's really, I, I don't know. It's ridiculous. I think it's it, it's not like, like again, like, I can't even get over it. Like, when's the last time an NFL player said, oh, I got to sit this one out? Uh, load management in the NFL. It's Tom Brady, like, like, none of these guys, like, your boy Russell Wilson, I mean, that guy's dropping back 50 times a game and running. Lamar Jackson's 20 carries a game, 20 dropbacks a game, touching the ball every play, the most physical sport. Of, in all of sports and football, and these guys aren't sending out games, but LeBron and Kawhi and all these guys need loan management. And it's only like sir, it's only like the top level players that need loan management. I don't, I don't, it's weird. Like, I don't know. You don't see Pascal Siakam and Fred Van Fleet sitting out for loan management. Those guys want to win. Yeah, Russell Wilson hasn't missed a, a game in his career. Also, I have my favorite sports talker, and what just taking Messi and Ronaldo into consideration, like what makes them so good is that. They play every three days, and they score goals basically in every single game in their prime, at least. And here's here's Messi's, like, last 10 years games played. 51, 53, 55, 60, 50, 46, 57, 49, 52, 54, 50. And then Ronaldo's, like, last 15 years or something is 40, 50, 
47, 53, 49, 53, 35. He's probably got injured. 55, 54, 55, 47, 54, 48, 46, 44, 43. And in a league season, there's only 38 games. So in the extra competitions, they're basically playing every single game. And it doesn't really matter where the game is or how much it means. They're always there. And that doesn't even take into consideration, like, the international games that they have to play. And, like, the offseason for soccer, you have to, like, travel around the world and do all this brand stuff. So they're playing in all those friendlies, too. And they've been doing it consistently for, like, 10 to 15 years. And Kawhi, he's been in – he's been he's had, he needs to rest every single year. And he's, he's, like, 27 years old. He's in the prime peak of condition of his life. And it doesn't – this doesn't make any sense. Prime athlete, and, and he has to rest. I don't understand that. Yeah, I – and I mean, uh, if you're a Clippers fan, I mean, I don't know how much Kawhi's even uh, signed for right now. But if this guy, like you said, 27 years old or whatever, and he's if if he's missing time because he's gassed after six games, that's concerning. And if he's missing time because he's injured, uh, I mean, that's concerning. Uh, if he has to sit out every three games because of an injury, he's only 27. It makes you wonder how much longer he'll last as a top tier player if that's seriously what he needs. Um, but like and. Not to go back to this, but, like, Ezekiel Elliott, guy's never missed a game because of injury in his career. He's a running back. He's probably the biggest workload of anyone uh, in the NFL. And he's in college, he had a massive workload, too, the guy that doesn't miss games. And his mantra, his whole thing is feed Zeke, feed Zeke. Zeke wants the ball. Zeke wants to play. I don't see Kawhi saying, oh, feed Kawhi. Kawhi does not want to play. There's no love for the game anymore. I don't know. I That's part of why the league is bad. Teams just switch teams. Players switch teams every year. It's impossible to like care about players. You can't buy an NBA jersey because your guys gonna tr- get traded a year later and signed somewhere else. Uh, there's no love for the game. The playoff, the regular season doesn't matter. Most of the playoffs don't matter. It's just the NBA is a bad league. There, it's terrible, terribly, terribly designed. Um, I don't know. It's bad. It's load management is bad for the NBA. They need to ban that. They need heavy fines or something. Suspension. Oh no, suspension defeats the purpose. Heavy fines, hefty. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, enough of uh, enough of load management. Sticking with basketball, college basketball season uh, just starting up. Villanova, big win uh, yesterday, ninety-seven to uh, fifty against Army. Army couldn't jump, but Villanova looked very impressive with uh, with the new squad of players. Last year, Villanova's team was consisted of five-year seniors, overhyped freshmen, and they were just they were kind of hard to watch. It wasn't like the players' fault; they just weren't good enough. And they were, like, the slowest team in college basketball last year, like, shot clock-wise. It took them forever to get their shots off. They, And that wasn't even by design. They just weren't really creative enough in getting their shots off. This year, athletes all over the floor, a bunch of depth, no real star players, new guys coming in. And I think I'm not going to – no seniors on the team either. So, I'm not – it's kind of hard to call Final Four for really any team in college basketball because anybody can beat anybody in the tournament. And if Duke hasn't made the Final Four in the last four or five years, then you can't really expect any team to make the Final Four. But – I don't know. One of these next few years, I think Villanova has the potential to make a, a deep run in the college basketball season. And as for Army, they need to they need to get some better guys that can down get down low and rebound. Yeah, and I mean, I did a, I did a little research for Villanova. I like I like your uh, take that Villanova is gonna have a huge bounce back year. And you you mentioned overrated freshmen. I mean, J- Jelly JQ, that guy is one of the worst basketball players I've ever watched in person. He was horrendous. Um. I mentioned on the podcast before. I've never seen a player get an, a, I've never seen a player who's supposed to be that talented and that great get a three that wide open and not shoot the ball. That 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 hesitation is his career in a nutshell. Jelly JQ, he's not a very good player. I don't know if 
I don't I don't think he's going anywhere. I mean, he transferred to Bama. Bama hoops. I think he transferred to Bama to get the pressure off him, maybe because it's like a football school so heavily that nobody really cares about that basketball team down there. So um, that's my only explanation for that. But Joey JQ, he's losing him, and then that that is a huge. That's ridiculously great addition by subtraction, not only for the team talent wise and on court wise, but also in the locker room. I'm assuming there's no way that guy was good for the locker room. Uh, yeah, uh, yesterday a freshman led the score, led the uh, scoring. Jeremiah Robinson Earl, five star from Kansas. Right now he's like a couple of mock drafts like don't have him on there, but then there's a couple of mock drafts that have him as top ten pick. So we need we need Jeremiah to stay one more year, and then also our five star uh, guard from New Jersey was uh, had shoulder surgery in the off season. So I don't know if we're gonna get to see him this year, but if he comes back, then there's another piece. Also, I want to talk about Colin Gillespie real quick, the point guard. Yesterday, for the first half, for the first half of the first half, he was distributing the ball and not really taking shots. And I think our offense really seemed to work like that. Then, like, offense scored 49 points in the first half, and Gillespie had zero points. So then when Gillespie tried to start scoring, he just kept bricking shots, and he was getting rejected by these Army white guys, and he was trying to go to the hoop. And it was just – it was ugly. So I think Villanova to function, Gillespie needs to distribute the ball to these other guys that can create one-on-one offense, and Gillespie's got to only take – open catch-and-shoot threes. Gillespie should not be trying to drive to the basket and get get a foul or try and lay one in. He's just – if you're getting rejected by Army guys that really have no business being on the floor with anybody else, then I don't know what's going to happen when you play an actual good team and you're trying to drive on them too. So I think Gillespie just needs to stick to distributing the ball. He has an open three, catch-and-shoot it, but that, that's it for Colin Gillespie. Yeah, and you talk about Jeremiah robinson Earl. So I, I did some research, actually, and um, Jay Wright – Jay Wright said that he was playing at halftime, I think, of the last game. He was he was hyping up uh, how good he was playing, but then he said that he needs to clean up his turnovers. And then the interviewer asked Earl, actually, he said, like, asked him about it, and he's like, oh, yeah, you're, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work on cleaning that up. I'm, I'm going to turn the ball over last and put his head down and work. Whereas last year, I mean, if, if Jay Wright criticized uh, Jelly JQ, the guy probably would have gone to Instagram and posted that he wanted to leave or something, wanted to go to Arizona, so – uh, big difference in mentality, big difference in culture. I like this Jeremiah Robinson Earl guy. Um, clearly a very talented player. Clearly works hard, wants to win, wants to, wants to improve, wants to get better. Um, so, yeah, I like Nova this year. I like your take there. Yes, that, that, is a, that is a good point on Jeremiah. Hopefully he stays for one more year after this. It was, we were down 4-2, to two actually. and uh, Like five seconds into the shot clock, somebody put uh, – Give the ball to Jeremiah, and he's on top of the key and just popped one and shot a two, and it was it was a, it was a great play. It showed that he's got confidence, and he didn't look to pass for somebody else, or he wasn't got the ball, took a shot, and made it. So I, I don't know, I like that. And then later on in the game, he just bullied the Army guys down low. So that's that's all for Villanova. Moving on to uh, UMass hockey, uh, Seamus, looking at it right now, six and one starts of the season. How are you uh, feeling about UMass coming off of their runner-up finish last I season? I am feeling great about UMass hockey. I felt great going into the season. There is, I mean, there's a couple of hot takes out there that UMass hockey was a one-man team last year, that they're, they're going to be overhyped this year. They're overrated. They shouldn't be a top-five team. Uh, they should, they're, although, most of the talk from UMass Lowell fans, not surprising. I mean, I understand the jealousy. Their team is pretty irrelevant now, especially after losing like eight of the last ten last year to miss uh, the national tournament and choking in the hockey's playoffs. It's it's UML, and that's what happens when you're a UML fan. I understand it. UMass is, has just surpassed them as a hockey program. It's simple as that. And um, 
from the casual fan will say, oh, they lost Kim McCarr, they lost Ferraro, they lost Pritchard. They're screwed. But if you look into it, I mean, Mitchell Chafee and John Leonard is still two of the best players in college hockey. Uh, you have Bobby Trevino, who as a freshman last year was probably one of the most impressive, fresh, impressive freshman forwards. He's playing alongside John Leonard now on the, their wing pairing. And no matter who they put at center this year, they've rotated. It's been unbelievable. John Leonard is looking like a Hobie Baker candidate. I mean, I'm, as pure goal scorer, the guy just puts the puck in the back of the net. Simple as that. Mitchell Chafee is too. He's playing with Oliver Chow. I mean, th- those two have played together forever um, on the top line. And their center, Jake Gaudette, has actually been out with an injury. He got benched later in the year, and now he's out with an injury. And they haven't missed a beat. Um, they've been rotating Anthony Legazzo up there, who former USHL player of the year, who – as a freshman last year, he didn't get a lot of playing time, but he's taken a huge step forward and filled in that Pritchard role that uh, uh, Pritchard left a huge scoring void last year. So UMass hockey taking a lot of big steps forward. And then um, on the defensive side of things, Mark Delgazzo has barely played this year because of injury. He's played one period. And um, that really hasn't stopped UMass from having the best penalty kill in the nation. Um, the power play has suffered without Delgazzo, but the quarterback of the power play is freshman Zach Jones. Second or third round pick in the Rangers. I can't remember right now. My going blank. Um, he's inexperienced, so that's that has a lot to do with it. But he's improving. Uh, the power play is improving every game, basically. So I, I expect the power play to be. Uh, and also, Greg Carville said this week that he's going to stack the tar- top power play. He's been trying to spread the wealth the last couple of games. So um, I expect the power play to b- take a big step forward this weekend against UNH. Um, and on the goaltending side of things, UMass returns two best goaltenders in the country. Philip uh, Philip Lindbergh and Matt Murray, best goaltending duo in the country. Both of them have been outstanding. Both are top ten in goals against average. I believe they might be top both top twenty in save percentage. Could be wrong there though. At least Matt Murray's top fifteen. Um, they both played really well this so far this year. Matt Murray, although he got benched at the end of the year last year for Laganov, or I mean Lindbergh, and Lindbergh kind of took uh, Cam like a breakout star in the playoffs. Matt Murray's probably been the most more impressive of the two this year. Um, kind of earned his job back almost, I'd say, as a starter, although I think it's going to continue to be a ton of shit the rest of the year. Um, but, yeah, overall, I mean, U.S. hockey is just – it's been a great season so far, and they're ranked number two now in the country. They, they started the season as number three or four. So they're moving up slowly but surely. And number one in the country is Denver, and there's going to be a huge series uh, right after New Year's Day, I believe January 2nd and 3rd or 4th, 3rd and 4th. Uh, against Denver. So that's going to be one of those exciting series of the entire season. So, yeah, UMass hockey, big strides forward. Yeah, I got I got a little bit of doubts over, over UMass hockey. I'm going to go to the uh, statistics right here. Scoring offense, first in hockey East, that's good. Seven games, 31 goals, average over four goals a game. Scoring defense, number one, seven games, 13 goals against. That's under two goals a game, very good. Penalty minutes, UMass is second in hockey East. 96 penalty minutes in seven games. So that you talk about the penalty kill, well, those are just inflated stats because you're in the box 24 seven. So I don't want. I don't want to. No, the, the penalty, penalty kill is not inflated stats. I'm talking penalty kill percentage. They have the best penalty kill percentage in all of college hockey. They they allowed two power play goals to Northeastern this weekend, uh, last weekend. But those two penalty kill goals were uh, in games where they had like over 20 penalty minutes. They've had pretty much over 20 penalty minutes every game. But a lot of that is their bottom six is mostly freshmen, although. I actually do want to talk about the bottom six because the bottom six has been unbelievable and probably two of the most underrated lines in all of college hockey so far, especially the third line. Uh, centered by Captain Nico Hildenbrand Sr., playing alongside two freshmen in Cal Kafuk and Reed Lebster. These two guys 
un, unheralded recruits. But Carvel liked their game a lot. He talked about it in the preseason. Talked about it over the summer. He said he liked their game a lot. So he's, those guys are going to make big, uh, big impacts this year, kind of in a Trevino mold as two young freshmen making big steps forward. And those two guys have been outstanding. I think they're they're both at least. Uh, that line of Hildenbrand, Kafuke, and Lepster, I mean, they're pretty much in the offensive zone 90% of the time they have the puck. Um, there's a reason UMass is out shooting every team they play by, like, 20. Um, but, yeah, discipline is the biggest issue right now as a team. That's that's undeniable. Discipline needs to be better. And the the third pairing is two freshmen, Matt Kessel and John Franco Casaro. Those two guys are very talented, uh, especially, I think, Casaro is like an offensive uh, – he's kind of a risky defenseman. He takes a lot of gambles, but – I think Kessel is—he's a great two-way player. He's big. He has a lot of potential on the blue line. Has a great slap shot, but he—he t- he tends to have a lot. I think he has like five penalties already this season. Um, but I mean, UMass is a physical team. They're the most physical team in hockey East right now, probably with that has talent. At least if you take away like the Vermont team that's full of twenty-five-year-olds. So, yeah, I don't know. I, you can talk about the discipline as an issue, but I don't—I don't—I don't think it's an issue personally. I think it's a side effect of playing a physical game and it's working especially when you have the best, most efficient penalty kill in all of college hockey. All right. Well, power play is uh, sixth in hockey, so we got to work on that. And also something that I've noticed is uh, scoring by periods. UMass has only scored five goals in the first period. That's that's down. That's not good compared to their second period. It's 14 and third period, which is 12 goals. So UMass, they're getting off to slow starts in some of these games. And against a better team, you know, you don't want to get behind get behind the scoreboard and only – they only have – yeah, you got you to start better in the first period against a better team. Yeah, I mean, that's undeniable too. Starting slow has been a problem. And, um, I mean, AIC actually got up to an early lead on UMass um, when they played. and But I mean, UMass made quick business of them in the second and third periods, proving they're a much better team. But, yeah, I mean, if you're going to talk issues, they're definitely fixable. Discipline and it's first period starting off slow. And those those are two issues that are fixable. That's That's – those like I mean, there's 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 probably no problems that you could have that are better than that to have because those problems are very easily fixable. Um, especially, I mean, the UMass is a younger team this year. They they have a lot of juniors and they have a lot of freshmen. So it's um, you just got to get the freshmen up to speed. Uh, especially when Mark Delgado comes back, that power play is going to take a huge step forward. Um, he's one of those guys that he was kind of overshadowed by McCarr and Ferraro last year, but he was the best freshman defenseman in all of. Uh, hockey East, so one of the best freshman defensemen in Hockey East history, actually. Uh, the guy's offensive production was off the charts, so I think Delgado's going to be a huge piece, especially for the power play. I mean, he's a, he's got a great shot, great power play quarterback, so um, I'm not I'm not too worried about uh, the power play at all, really, and discipline is definitely a concern. It was kind of a concern at the end of the year last year, too, and especially in the playoffs. They kept getting stupid penalties, so um, yeah, I can't deny that uh, that discipline's an issue. You're right there, but they—I mean, they can—I think they can overcome it. I'm not too worried about that. And then uh, before I give you Mass some credit, I'm gonna—I—I I don't like this two goaltender scenario. I think when you get into the big games, from from a defenseman, I want stability. I want to know who's be, who's behind the net for me. And I don't know when you get into the tournament who's playing, and I don't know the goalies gonna get mad at each other. And you know, you know, you you know the you know the goalies want to play in the big games, and if you're rotating and chopping and turning the goalies, you know. This goalie has a bad game. You stick with him. If he has a good game, you stick with him. I don't. I don't know. Let's. I just. I just don't like the two goalie format. I don't think national national championship teams don't have two goalies. They have they have one goalie that they ride out throughout the whole year, and 
I don't think two goalies is a yeah, fine. It might it might get you success through the regular season, but in the playoffs, you need you needed that one goalie who's gonna be dominant. And I don't know. So over the course of the hockey's regular season, it won't show itself. But in the playoffs, I don't think two goalies is the best way to win. Well, I mean, if you look at what they did last year, they Murray was basically the starter. He was the guy um, for the entire regular season. Almost he won, I think he won hockey's goaltender of the month a couple times actually. So I'm he seemed like a like one of the best goalies in all of hockey East. And then playoffs come around. He has a crap game right before playoffs, and he plays pretty bad in the beginning of the playoffs in the first round. I think it was against UNH, um, and he got benched. So uh, Lindbergh, Lindbergh basically, Carvel rode Lindbergh, rode the hot hand for the rest of the playoffs. He wasn't afraid to do that. So, I mean, I think there's a track record of Carvel not being afraid to play the hot hand. And I think that, I mean, it does. I can see you can say it has a detrimental effect mentally to the goalies, but at the same time, I mean, these two are going to push each other to be their best. Um, they're never going to get comfortable. And that, that, that was a huge point of emphasis for Greg Carl this offseason. Uh, he doesn't want anyone getting comfortable. doesn't want anyone to be satisfied with what they did last year. Because he's not satisfied with what they did last year. Um, he wants more. He wants a national championship. And he wants to keep improving. And he doesn't want anyone to get complacent. And uh, he already – I talked about it a little bit earlier. barely just mentioned it. But uh, Jake Godet and Phil Wagonoff were the first and second line centers going into the season. Both got benched for being complacent. Having he, Greg Carvel said that they didn't have the best summers, uh, they weren't working hard enough, so he was not afraid to bench them early in the season, and uh, the results paid off because I mean, Jack Suter and Anthony Zagazo filled in uh, very nicely for both of them, and the production has not faltered at all in those top two lines. So I think that shows that UMass is a deep team, and that shows that Greg Carvel is a coach who's not afraid to play the hot hand at and uh, bench guys when they're not playing good enough. So. Um, I don't know. I think going into the playoffs, I, you're not going to alternate goalies in playoff games. Probably that's not really a thing. So I just – I can see them – right now, if you had to choose a goalie to play the rest of the season as the as the guy, the number one guy, it would probably be Matt Murray um, from an outside perspective. But I don't really know what's going through Carl's head in terms of that. He's a, he's not a – he's not – Carl's not huge into the goal setting side of the thing. He lets his goalie coach uh, control those decisions for the most part. For the most part so – um, it's really not even 100% on Carvel to make that decision. But, um, yeah, I, I can see them – once playoff starts, I think they're just going to ride with the guy who had the better regular season, probably whoever's hot at the time, whoever finished more strong. So, yeah, I don't know. And we're probably going to get a more clear picture of who the guy is as the regular season goes on. It will stop being more of a uh, – they play every other game to more, oh, Lindbergh had a shutout yesterday, he's going to play again. Or Mario had a shutout, he's going to play again. So, yeah, I don't know. That's my, That's my answer to that. Then uh, lastly on UMass, so I get uh, John Buchkoff's, uh Twitter alerts, and then he he always does his college hockey rankings, and he always had UMass above Northeastern. And I I couldn't figure out why in the beginning. Uh, Northeastern beat UMass on October fifteenth. If you look at the schedules, uh, UMass Northeastern pl- both played Union, but Northeastern went on the road and beat Union twice, where UMass had them at home. Then also you had UMass scheduling uh, AIC and barely squeaking by them with like two empty net goals in the last five minutes or something. So AIC would like to have that game back where you have uh, Northeastern going on the road and beating St. Cloud State. So scheduling tougher games than UMass. I guess UMass has Denver coming up. But at this moment in time, I'm looking at the rankings. I don't know why Northeastern wasn't above UMass. But then we get to last weekend, UMass beats Northeastern twice, once at home, once on the road. So I guess that'll uh, end my debate of UMass versus Northeastern in the rankings. So I guess that was I was impressed by that for UMass to win two games in a row against uh, Northeastern. Five wins in a row, so 
I would have had UMass above Northeastern on October 31st, but I guess after November 3rd, I would have Northeastern above UMass on October 31st, but I guess November 3rd, those rankings would have been switched. Yeah, I think UMass uh, showed they're a better team. The 2-1 loss, or 3-1 loss was not that goal, so really just a one goal loss, but that game was kind of fluky. I mean, it was only the second game of the season. It was on a Tuesday night, um, and UMass... The discipline uh, and the lack of – the power play problems really boiled over in that game, and that was probably the worst game I've seen the UMass power play have in uh, since my freshman year here, which was two years ago. And uh, the penalty – they got a ridiculous amount of penalties, although they were able to kill off every single penalty. But when you're, when you're on the penalty kill for 90% of the game, you can't generate any offense. So they weren't able to put any goals in the back of the net, pucks in the back of the net that came. And also, you say AIC is a weak opponent, but St. Cloud State's a strong opponent. I mean, AIC beat St. Cloud in the first round of the national tournament last year. AIC is a legit team. They're not that bad. And it's a rivalry game. It's a uh, battle for Western Mass. So you have to play that game every year. It's not, it's not that bad of an opponent. AIC is a decent program. They're gritty. They're old, too. They're, they're experienced. So. And they, they beat St. Cloud. You got to give them that. Got to give them credit there. All right. Um, I guess... Uh... Finishing the show with uh, some soccer this weekend in the Premier League. Liverpool hosts Man City. Top of the uh, top of the standings clash. After 11 games, Liverpool has a six-point lead. This game will be interesting because I think even though Liverpool has a six-point lead, I think it's more important for them to win than for Manchester City. I think a tie tie doesn't really do anything for either team. But if Man City were to uh, were to win this game, Liverpool would definitely get worried about their lead at the top of the table. Everybody's saying that Liverpool is not really playing well right now, but, I mean, you've won 10 out of your first 11 games and you have you haven't lost yet, so I don't know how you're not playing well. Both teams aren't defending as well as they usually have, but I think with Liverpool being at home, I'd be surprised. They haven't lost at home in a really, really long time. So, And Manchester City's only beat Liverpool, I think, once in like the last 30 years or whatever at Liverpool. So I think I think the game will probably be a tie. That's the way most of these big games usually work. But I think, I think it's really important, even though Liverpool have a six-point lead, I think it's really important for them to win and get get a nine point lead to feel more comfortable going on into the season because Manchester City still have to play Liverpool at home and that Manchester City probably be favored in that game and they probably expect to win that game. So even if Manchester City tie, it's really not the worst result in the world for them because they still have Liverpool at home and they can cut to three points in that game. So I think it's important for Liverpool to win, but I do think in, the, in these games, usually both teams probably be afraid to lose. I think I think it'll be a tie. Yeah, um, I I'm seeing now that. Uh... Man City's goaltender's hurt. Um, he, there. I don't know if he's gonna play or not. It, it says the article I read says his status is in doubt. Ederson, Ederson, I believe. Yeah, he got hurt today in the. He came off at halftime. Yeah, so his status is in doubt ahead of the Liverpool game, and then also, but on the other hand, uh, Mo Salah, I guess, has gotten off to a slow start in the season. Am I right saying that? So, I don't know. I, this Man City's. I mean, they've dominated the last couple of years, so I think they're probably – if I had to bet, I'd probably take them to win, although Liverpool is – I do like Liverpool, you know. You, you kind of you, – you you swayed me a lot on Liverpool a couple of years ago. You, you uh, They have a great fan base, a historical team. You compared them to ND football, so um, I hope Liverpool wins. Man City, they have more money than everybody. They kind of spend a lot. They don't seem like a very likable team. So I, I hope Liverpool wins, but um, – I don't know. Most lot, most lot needs to score some goals if they want to win, and it's going to be against a backup goalie probably. So I don't, I don't know. Uh, I don't think it should be that difficult for him to score. 
Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. I think, yeah, there'll definitely be goals flying flying in this game. I don't. The defenses really aren't that good this season, and I think Liverpool at home last year they lost the title by like one point, and this game was a draw at home in Manchester City. When they play Manchester City on the road, there's like 18 games left in the season. Liverpool had a seven point lead at the time, and they lost, and they went down to four. Manchester City like won the rest of their games and won the title. So I think. In the league right now, there's not really that much diversity. And really, it used to be where anybody could beat anybody. But those days are over because these two teams are just so good. So these head-to-head games really will decide the title. So I think Liverpool really at home, if they want to win the title, they have to they have to win the home game as last year. It was a 0-0 draw at home, which probably at the time would have seemed like an okay result. But at the end of the season, when you lose the title by one point and you have a chance to beat your rival at home, you kind of have to take your uh, opportunity. Yeah, and I mean, Salah, I guess he had an ankle injury uh, a couple of weeks ago, and that's what's been slowing him down. But, I mean, I don't know. But if both teams, if most Salah's battling injury, that's got to be concerning. But, I mean, Liverpool, like you said, they're pretty stacked up and down the lineup. Um, so, yeah, I am I guess if Liverpool's at home, they, they probably should be favored if they're going back up goal, and it's going to be a high-scoring game. Um, but Mo, Mo Salah needs to be big in this game. Mo Salah, big-time players, he needs to show up in big-time games. And this guy – is one of the biggest players in all of soccer. So, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. If most lot doesn't show up, I'm taking Man City. All right. Uh, and I guess that'll uh, wrap up the episode. Yeah, that's all I got. All right. Thank you for listening to the Bias Opinion Podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Bias underscore underscore opinion. We'll tweet every time we have a new episode. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a possible uh, – got some, got some possible guests coming on next week. So stay tuned for that. Thanks for listening.